Please listen carefully. 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 Hey there, everybody. Happy Fourth of July. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org. I'm Lawrence Eppard, your host. I hope everybody's having a restful and celebratory Independence Day. And look, I know times are tough right now in this country. Mass shootings have rocked us once again. Inflation is high and economic troubles are looming. A series of Supreme Court cases have, depending upon your point of view, left you either elated or saddened. With each passing week, we find out just how close we were to losing our democracy in the aftermath of the 2020 election with a nearly successful coup that involved fake electors pressure on the vice president, on Congress, on state and local election officials, and what was very nearly a massive corruption of the Department of Justice. This is absolutely a five-alarm fire for American democracy. As Michael Gerson laments, recent developments in the U.S. are, quote, revealing the frightening fragility of the American experiment, end quote. And as Jonathan Last warns, quote, America faces an authoritarian peril, end quote. Will Salatin wrote in the bulwark, quote, Americans like to think our country is immune to authoritarianism. We have a culture of freedom, a tradition of elected government, and a bill of rights. We're not like those European countries that fell into fascism. We never willingly abandoned democracy, liberty, or the rule of law. But that's not how authoritarianism would come to America. In fact, it's not how authoritarianism has come to America. The movement to dismantle our democracy is thriving and growing, even after the failure of the January 6th coup attempt, because it isn't spreading through overt rejection of our system of government. It's spreading through lies. End quote. Now, I want to strike a celebratory tone today, but I want you to know that I'm personally not immune to the horrors of mass shootings, the economic pain that my family's feeling and families across the country are feeling. I personally am absolutely terrified that we are going to lose our democracy in the next few years. I'm terrified. But as I see it, we only have a few paths forward. Either this is all a sign of decline, and we need to brace ourselves for even darker days ahead, because the game is just over. Or, this is an inflection point, where we realize what a great country this is, how very much we have to lose, and decide to get back to the basics and the ideals 
that have stood the test of time. Things like honesty, truth, civility, democracy, and so forth. This country has done so many great things and has the potential to do so much more if we can not only move past this moment, but crucially, and we can't just move past this moment without doing this, we need to heal what has been damaged. And on this 4th of July, I choose to believe that that is what we will do. So let us celebrate today. Let's celebrate the great things that we have done as a country. Let's celebrate the healing that we can all do together and the bright days ahead in the stronger country that will surely emerge from our efforts. Now with that very positive sentiment, let's move forward with a positive tone today and talk about our guests. So we have two guests on the show today. In segment two, we're going to be talking to Arjun Morthy, co-founder of The Factual, a website that uses a really innovative method to help determine whether a news source is credible or not. Artificial intelligence should be a really cool conversation. But first up, we have James Zimring, a professor of pathology at the University of Virginia's School of Medicine, to talk about his new book, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Here is an excerpt from his book's description. Quote, A fast food chain once tried to compete with McDonald's quarter pounder by introducing a third pound hamburger, only for it to flop when consumers thought a third pound was less than a quarter pound because three is less than four. Separately, a rash of suicides by teenagers who played Dungeons and Dragons caused a panic in parents and the media. They thought D&D was causing teenage suicides, when in fact, teenage D&D players died by suicide at a much lower rate than the national average. Errors of this type can be found from antiquity to the present. James Zimring argues that many of the mistakes that the human mind consistently makes boil down to misperceiving fractions, end quote. So it turns out, just like all of our teachers told us when we were kids, we really are going to use math as adults. So uh, here is our guest today, our first guest today, James Zimring, to talk about that. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So you have just released a new book called Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. It was published by Columbia University Press earlier this year, and you can find it anywhere that you find books, Amazon.com or anywhere else. And uh, I want to dive in and talk about that book. This is a pretty cool new book you've got. So uh, first, let's talk about what motivated you to write this book. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, I think it's a fair statement that our society is struggling right now with how we evaluate claims of fact and justification of beliefs in the context of conflicting evidence. I'm sure, you know, all of us can can see that. And sometimes it's just people screaming facts louder than anyone else and hoping they're listening to, but usually some sort of evidence or reasoning uh, is, is put forth. And what we're struggling with, I think, a bit is trying to explain um, to understand how intelligent, educated, rational people can encounter the very same world and come to radically different views. 
uh, with each view having great confidence that it is correct and that those with other views are at best misguided and at worst stupid or even sinisterly manipulating you know, information. Now, clearly, there are people with agendas who are lying and distorting and twisting information, but that's not what the book is about. What the book is trying to address is setting aside bad actors, focusing on, on good, honest people who are trying to understand the world around them. Why humans have this tendency still to polarize into different camps of mutually exclusive beliefs, and humans have this amazing tendency to get things wrong. We all do, and at times, tragically. Now, in the last 50 years or so, cognitive psychology has made great progress in describing how humans tend to think in different circumstances, how we observe and misobserve, how we reason and misreason, and what we find compelling. And the good news is that overall, we do get a lot of things right. But in certain circumstances, we consistently get things wrong. And these errors that we make, uh, th we do it to ourselves uh, spontaneously. But they're also a point of vulnerability um, by which we can be manipulated by, by other people. So, you know, most of the books in this space either give a litany of errors or they give a, a really in-depth um, theoretical analysis of, of why neurochemically and neurologically they think these things are happening. And the first uh, kind of book, to my mind, are not terribly useful. Um, and the second type are not accessible, and nor do they explore how the manifestation of these problems uh, come about in the real world. So I wrote this book um, to try to make some of the important advances in cognitive psychology accessible to the public and to describe how they manifest in multiple areas of everyday life, from politics to marketing to our fundamental beliefs that affect the arc of our lives. And perhaps most importantly, recent advances that explain why we have these errors and how they're extremely useful in some settings while they're a uh, liability in others. So we're going to get to specifically uh, the problem with errors we make in math and, and fractions and probability. But let's start with the, the cognitive biases that you talked about. So what are some of these, these common cognitive biases that you talk about in your book? We all have them, right? And, and what is the problem with them? Well, first of all, I want to clarify that I'm using the word bias here, not in the common uh, usage of the word that you're prejudiced or bigoted, but that you um, make an error in, in thinking due to something that's influencing uh, the way your mind works. So some of the biases I talk about um, are, have names like the availability heuristic, where we tend to think that what comes to our mind easily is what is the most likely. Uh, which may be the case if you're extremely widely experienced, but usually it's not. And perhaps the big, bad, horrible <laughs> bias that affects us the most, confirmation bias, here we are filtering uh, what we observe and how we weigh evidence in a way that we exaggerate what supports what we think is already correct, and we diminish or ignore. So we're only seeing a fraction of the information in, in that way. And then there's, there's multiple other manifestations that fit these types of forms. And the reason I'm focusing on this as a thread through the book is it all comes down to a fundamental um, misuse by our minds, by our, by our um, you know, sort of intuitive minds and misunderstanding by our reflective minds of how probability type issues work. Now, in the book, uh, what kinds of thinking are you describing? And can you talk specifically about... Uh, so what does fractions have to do with it? Why do you use fractions to explain this problem? Mm. So, you know, again, math is just a language um, that describes nature and reality. It, it is a special language with, with special properties. 
uh, but a language nevertheless. And a fraction is just a symbolic representation of if you have a, a group of things, how many of those things have a particular property, right? And so when we talk about questions that are flying around, right, are undocumented immigrants more likely to commit crimes? Are people of color more likely to be killed by police? Am I more likely to get sick from taking a COVID vaccine than potentially being infected? All of these words I'm using, likely, are probability statements, and they all take the form of fractions. So how we process ideas like that is central right, to the narrative that's, that's going through everything we do. I want, let me unpack the availability heuristic uh, a little bit because it, it's pretty much everywhere. What we um, hold in our minds as available, well, what comes to our minds, and, and so you know, as we experience the world, we only perceive a small fraction of what's coming in. We notice a smaller fraction of that. Of what we notice, we remember a smaller fraction of that. And so, you know, people who want to go swimming in the ocean, a lot of them might say, well, yeah, I'd love to go swimming in the ocean, uh, but I'm afraid of getting eaten by a shark because, you know, there's movies, a lot of movies about being eaten by a shark. And when someone is killed by a shark, it makes the news. It's all over the place. And so when we think of swimming in the ocean, that's what's available to our mind. But that's a very small fraction of what actually happens to people who are swimming. The truth is, a lot of people die uh, because they get caught in a riptide and they drown. That's what's dangerous about swimming in the ocean. But you don't see Hollywood making a movie called Riptide, you know, everybody, <laughs> or, or the news coming out, unless it's a celebrity or something weird happened. So the reason that that fits the form of a fraction is that you're, you're just taking a, a small representation of the total without taking into account what's really going on. And then there's the, the comparison issue, right? So one of our debates that's going on, or, or a debate that, that is going on, is whether undocumented immigrants represent an unusually dangerous population. Actually, you had a segment previously on your show recently talking about this, and what your guest specifically said is people aren't taking the denominator into account. The, the denominator, right, is the bottom of a fraction. So during the um, 2016 presidential campaign, uh, then-candidate Trump referred heavily to Catherine um, Steinle, who was uh, killed by Juan Lopez Sanchez, who happened to be an undocumented immigrant. Look at this American citizen who was killed by an undocumented immigrant. Isn't that horrible? Undocumented immigrants are dangerous. So that's a statement of fact, but that is just the top of the fraction. You, that's not what you need to know to answer the question. What you need to know is, of the undocumented immigrants in America, what percentage of them commit a violent crime compared to the percentage of citizens that were born here, right? And when you juxtapose those numbers, it is unequivocal. I mean, you can't even twist the statistics and make a different argument that immigrants in general and undocumented immigrants and those from Mexico, and I'm, I'm focusing on those because President Trump specifically said, you know, Mexican immigrants are dangerous, have a much lower rate of crime uh, than do non-immigrants. Uh, and I'm uh, not actually not all crimes, but in general, you know, and, and, and particularly violent crimes. So our tendency to just look at the top of the fraction to, to get an anecdotal piece of information and draw a vast conclusion without taking into account the context of the denominator is everywhere. 
We do it constantly. You know, you might take a trip to Germany and you're staying at a really nice hotel. And when you pay people money, they tend to be nice to you. And you interact with four, maybe five German people there. And they're very lovely. And you come back to the States and someone says to you, so what was your trip like? And you say, well, Germans are really nice. Okay. Well, you, you met five Germans, right? Out of 8 million living in the country. And we all have to do this because we have finite experience. But these are the types of um, errors we make. And then, and this is the weird part, once we believe something, going forward, we pervert the fraction, we focus on the numerator and, and ignore the denominator. But by that, I mean, we notice things that confirm our beliefs. We ignore things that disconfirm them, or we um, diminish the, the weight of the evidence. So it's really not that seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. And, but then that's what's internal to the mind. Very importantly, what is external to the mind, right? Data are presented to us all the time by external sources that are in the form of a fraction, but are given as a single number. And because we don't know, may not know what the function behind that number is. It can be easily twisted and manipulated and changed in ways that that are is very confusing to us. And so it's the um, synergistic cooperation of our internal thinking and the external world that amplifies this problem, and it just causes an awful lot of confusion. Yeah. So we're going to jump to that uh, in this next question, but first we're going to say, ladies and gentlemen, James Zimmering just did a callback to a previous episode. And for that, he'll be he'll be invited on many future episodes because he is <laughs> he's he's only encouraging you to listen to more episodes. So, um, all right. So, yeah, so you brought it up. So let's let's dive into it. So these are not just internal processes that, um, you know, have the same negative impact regardless of social conditions. They're made worse by people intentionally trying to manipulate us by being in. Uh, Facebook algorithms and Twitter algorithms, et cetera. So let's talk about the political manipulation of data. Um, how do politicians, what's the typical way that you see politicians manipulating information to use our cognitive tendencies against us? Yeah. So this is a really, um, first of all, I could talk hours and hours and hours you know, about this. Politicians are very skilled people and the name of the game is staying in the game. Right. Regrettably, politicians are not incentivized to tell the truth. They're incentivized to say what will get them reelected, whatever that is. <laughs> and I think we can see that pretty clearly in our country today. Uh, the most common form would be uh, making statements like, I got more votes than any other candidate in history. Uh, the economy gained more money under my uh, watch than any other time in history. We created more jobs than any other time in history. So that's the numerator. But it's not taking into account the size of the country, size of the economy, right? The, the number of jobs that are out there. So when the stock market crashed in 1929, it lost 48% of its value. It went down by 182 points, right? I mean, today, that's a mild, really mild down day. And so if you look days and up and downs, you can say that, um, you know, the, the, st the stock market when it dropped on a day-to-day -day basis much more for Presidents Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Obama than it ever did for Herbert Hoover, right? Because it's just taken out of, out of context. So that's just a very a common a thing that, that people do. But more um, kind of more nuanced, 
we're given uh, statistics all the time that people use to try to paint themselves in a favorable light that have an underlying fractional form that makes them malleable. So as the pandemic was starting to really mature, the two following characteristics came out um, the, at one point. The unemployment rate was dropping and average wages were going up. Said, wow, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Unemployment rates drop, dropping and, and wages are going up. So what's going on with that? Well, you have to look at how these numbers, we're given single numbers, are calculated. Unemployment is a fraction. It's the, the number of people that um, don't have jobs over the total number of people who want to be employed or are in seeking employment and uh, the average uh, wage or average wages. So what that means is that unemployment can drop if more people get jobs or if people who don't have jobs just give up. And wages can go up if people get paid more by their employers or if lower paying jobs disappear, the average wage goes up, right? So what was happening as the pandemic uh, was unrolling is that jobs were being destroyed so quickly that people were giving up. They couldn't even, they couldn't even seek work and the lower paying jobs were being eliminated. So unemployment went down and the average, you know, wage went up. And so because we, we, people may not know or, or investigate the nuances behind these statistics that were given. When you hear campaign speeches, when you hear, you know, stump speeches, people are saying things, the numbers they're giving are true from this, from one point of view. But because you, you can change the underlying numerator and denominator behind them. Yeah. There was one, uh, that happened recently that you may or may not have caught your eye. Um, Tucker Carlson had Alex Narasta, who is a very prominent researcher about immigration and crime at the Cato Institute. And he, he's written extensively about uh, the amount of crime and, and the, the crime rates of legal and unauthorized immigrants, uh, um, undocumented immigrants. And um, Tucker Carlson throws up a graphic of the percentage of the federal prison population that was mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. And again, that is a small part of the overall population that was arrested, right? So where you right. send people who are yeah. arrested is different from the total number of people who are arrested. And again, playing with the numerator and denominator in ways that people who were watching weren't aware of. Yeah. It was just an impressive graphic, right? And so right, right. <laughs> it seemed like he had caught Narasta in a lie, right? When in fact he had not. And it was it was repulsive. It was um I you know, Tucker Carlson's a very smart man. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Lest people think that I'm picking on conservatives, right? During the Obama administration, at one point when the conflict in Afghanistan was really bad, the Obama administration started reporting that the number of uh, deaths was number of soldiers killed was being dropping in Afghanistan and look, things are getting better. The number of soldiers being killed are dropping. And during that period of time, though, what was happening was American soldiers were standing down in the field. Afghani soldiers were increasing their numbers in the field and the rate of death was unaltered, but the statistic was only counting American deaths. Now, if your argument is America is paying less of a price in blood, fine, but that wasn't the argument that was made. The argument was that the situation is getting better because fewer uh, soldiers are being killed. And so what they really did was they, they separated the fraction. They removed a chunk of the denominator to try to make a point that they wanted to point now, wanted to make. Now, ultimately, they did back off on that when it was pointed out to them. 
But this is a, an instrument of manipulation that is used widely. And uh, it's really regrettable. Yeah, so we all have these biases. Um, both political parties uh, weaponize our biases. And I try to draw my, my students' attention to that in the classroom because I'll, I'll say, if I'm talking about immigration, for instance, I'll say, look, conservatives tend to lie more about immigration. But if you picked a different topic, liberals would be lying about that topic. And you, you mentioned Obama. Um, one of the examples I always use is when we talk about the gender, gender pay gap in mm -hmm. class. And he says, you know, women are making 83% of what men are making for the same jobs. That was incorrect, right? He 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 right. Uh, he mixed up the samples, right? It was all full time workers, but not uh, doing the same job. So I, I concur with you that uh, on this particular question, yes, conservatives lie a lot, but uh, liberals lie on other questions, right? Yeah. So, all True. right, so let's let's move on. So, okay, so you devote two chapters in your book to new age practices and systems of understanding the future, like Nostradamus and the Bible Code. So. Uh, that looked pretty juicy to me. I haven't read those chapters yet. So tell us about those. Um, there's a guy named um, Tyler um, Vigan who wrote this wonderful a book called Spurious Correlations, where in a couple of years, he just looked at all the information you can get from all the almanac, almanacs in America and saw what weird you know correlations popped out. Now, the reason this is a fraction determination is you don't see all the combination of things that didn't, that were just noise, that were meaningless. You only see the, you notice the few things uh, that are meaningful. And so it's very comical. He, he showed that the age of Miss America in any given year correlates very highly with murder by steam, hot vapors, and hot objects. <laughs> and that the divorce rate in Maine correlates incredibly closely with the per capita consumption of margarine in the United States. And so, I mean, so th the question is, is this all this happening with the Bible code? So in order to, to test this, um, some, uh, some very clever statisticians took the algorithm that was used for the Bible code and applied it to Moby Dick. And when they did that, they could clearly find in Moby Dick, the foretelling of the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Indira Gandhi, JFK, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Yusuf Rabim. And believe it or not, and I'm not trying to mock people because this is actually a, a demonstration of confirmation bias. Some people looked at that information and said, aha, there are hidden messages in many texts and we should start applying this everywhere instead of coming to the conclusion that maybe an error was made, you know, in the Bible code. Um, this, this goes across the board. So, you know, people are smart. People are not going to believe things unless they see evidence that they work, which is why when you go to a fortune teller, a clairvoyant, whether in public or in private, usually they start with a demonstration of their powers. They start to tell you things about you that they couldn't possibly know to convince you that they're worth listening to in the future. But if, if, you, if you see what they do, almost all of them, they don't tell you things about you. They ask you questions about you. And sometimes the questions they ask about you are so likely to get a positive response that there's there's really no way to avoid it. And sometimes you work with them that you notice the hits and ignore the misses. This is, again, you know, confirmation bias. So let me ask you personally, if I were to say to you, I'm sensing a person in your life, maybe past or present, and, and what I'm getting is the first letter of their name is a J or an M or, or maybe an S or a D. Who am I seeing? Can you tell me? Uh, my mother's name started with an M. Yeah, that's your mom. That's who I'm seeing. And then, and you know, it goes on and on and on. Well, um, 40% of 
of names begin with one of those four letters. At least mm-hmm. you know, 40% of American names begin in one of those four letters. So if you have 40 people in your life, you know, friends, acquaintances, family, uh, and I am going to nail one of the people in your life every time I do this. Actually, that's not entirely true. One out of ever, every 748 million times I do that, it's going to miss. <laughs> right. And so, and then, you know, I, I would, I would, I don't, I don't know anything about you personally, but I would say that, you know, your mom is probably older and still with you or passed, she passed on. Away. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but what I would have said was, you know, your mom, you're worried about her. You have some regrets. You have some regrets surrounding your mom's passing. Well, who doesn't have a regret? Right. around their mom's passing, right. or you're worried about this or that. And then, and then people will work with the fortune teller. And, and this is, this is in a way very misleading. Um, now in the book, I go into a, a chapter uh, talking about Mark Edward, who is a, a professional magician, a mentalist. And he tells the story about how he was doing a seminar to explain to people why this is just a magic trick. It's all nonsense. And people started getting convinced that he really had psychic powers. He couldn't unconvince them <laughs> um, because of, of how, how compelling it can be. Right. So all of this stuff is basically you're, you're, you are trying to explain why extremely likely things happen. And there's no need to explain why extremely likely things happen. It's just <laughs> that they look impossible to us. And it's rational to believe something that's really likely, and it's rational to disbelieve something that's impossible. So when you go across a lot of new age practices, which are not tested, what well, I would say scientifically, they fall into this, this trap. And it's one big probability argument. The question is not, did someone who took a crystal therapy get better from their illness? That is not the question. The question is, do people who take crystal therapy get better from their illness at a greater frequency than people would recover without any treatment? Right. And when you hear story, we are storytelling creatures. We love anecdotes. Even trained professionals prefer anecdotal stories over statistical data. And so when someone says to you, oh, you're sick, you should try crystal therapy. You say, well, I don't know. He said, no, no, no. Listen, I had a friend, Bob, in college. And he was really sick and he went to a crystal therapist and he got better. That's compelling, right? So, I mean, to a lot of people, but unless you look at it in the context of the whole number and the frequencies, you can't tell. And when you do that, almost inevitably, the effect disappears. So, what you're describing is a clinical trial. So, (laughs) that leads (laughs) to my next question, which is, uh, so tell us a little bit about why should we trust science, right? So you've said all humans make cognitive errors, right? And you've written this book, you wrote another book called What Science Is and How It Really Works. And in both books, you talk about the difference between scientific thinking, scientific methods, and just normal everyday human observation. So um, how do scientific methods put some guardrails in place to avoid these kinds of errors? Yeah. So let me ask, you asked a couple questions there together, but first of all, why should people trust science? Um, let me, let me unpack that a little bit. People should not trust science to always be right because science is frequently wrong, right? People should trust science to get things right more frequently than other methods of approaching knowledge claims and understand that that if anything will work, science will work. But this is an imperfect approach. And you can look at the 
uh, scientific methodology. Now, now it is a fiction. <laughs> there has never been, probably, nor will there ever be, a scientific method codified that all scientists agree upon. A, a knowledge machine that if you turn the crank, new understanding comes out. There are um, methodologies that are designed specifically to mitigate the types of observational errors that you and I have been talking about and many other sources of error, right? So, so let's get to the, let's use the crystal example moving forward. What a scientist would do is say, okay, I'm going to take two groups of patients, right? Or, or people who are in need of therapy. And I'm going to separate them into two groups. And one group is going to get crystals uh, that I believe have healing power. That's the hypothesis. The other group is going to, it's not that they're going to get nothing, by the way. They're going to get crystals that look identical to the crystals the first group is getting that are indistinguishable, but they don't have whatever magical you know properties. They're not really a crystal. They're a fake crystal. And not only, by the way, are the patients not going to know who's getting the real crystal and the fake crystal? The scientists running the trial, the doctors and nurses taking care of the patients are not going to know. Because why? Because of confirmation bias. That if you're if you're a physician or a medical researcher and you you may treat one group a little differently, unbeknownst to yourself, right? Because their subjective feelings people may report differently. Also, very importantly, the groups need to be randomized before they're separated. And what does that mean? Well, if you happen to have more males in one group and females in another, if you happen to have older people in one group you know, and younger people in another, on average, if there's other things that are different between the group, which are called confounders, any difference you see may be due to that and not the crystals. So if you do this and there's no effect then you would argue, well, the crystals don't do anything. If you do see an effect, you're not done, right? If you do see an effect, let's just say that the group that got the crystals does better than the group that got the fake crystals. Now you have to ask yourself, is that a real effect? You can't see, you know, air quotes on a podcast, but is that a real effect? Or did that just happen by chance alone? So, well, how could that happen by chance alone? Well, some people, their disease was going to be better anyway. Some people, their disease was going to be worse anyway. Did the people whose disease was going to be better anyway happen to wind up in the group just by chance, right? That got the real crystals instead of the fake crystals. And you apply statistical methods to ask, given the size of the study, how it was powered, what you're doing exactly, how likely is it that that occurred? And if and only if the chance of that occurring is less than 5%. By the way, this is a this is a metric that is applied to many fields, not all fields, and it's a lot more complicated than that I'm simplifying, but more or less 5%, then we call it a real effect. And if not, then we say, even though we saw an effect, we don't think it's real. We think that was just accidental. That is the type of statistical and observational rigor that will be applied to a scientific trial. And the reason it's done is to control for biases, confounders, statistical improbabilities, we will never tame uncertainty, right? There's always going to be some uncertainty, but we can quantify it. Now, I mean, that's basically the answer to your question. So you should trust science to get things more right than not science, because it specifically has guardrails to control for errors that we know we make. All right. So in your book, you describe how these problems manifest in the criminal justice system, which I think is going to perk a lot of people's ears up these days. So 
Um, can you tell us about that and specifically what happened in the Collins case? Yeah. So um, thank you for that question. There's two major issues here. One is um, uh, biases in trials and prosecutorial conduct. And the other is this question of institutionalized bias. And if we have time, I'd like to talk about both of them. The Collins case is a famous case uh, where a, a, um, a, a woman was uh, assaulted and um, a witness saw her being assaulted and the assailant ran away and, and got in a car with another person and drove off. And they went to the police and described the crime and they gave the characteristics of the people who had assaulted them. They said what color car they drove, what race they were, what kind of hair they had, you know, just many physical characteristics of them. And the police went out and they found someone who fit all of those characteristics. And because they fit those characteristics, they arrested them. Now, the, neither the victim nor the witness could pick these people up out of a lineup. But, you know, when people are traumatized, sometimes they don't um, observe exactly and things look different later. So, you know, a lot of people get convicted uh, under these circumstances. Well, when they went to trial, the prosecution's argument was a probability argument exclusively, almost. And what they basically said was the properties that these people have, the number of people that drive this color car that are this kind of couple, that wear this kind of clothing, that are this kind of hairdo, that are this height and this weight is only one in 12 million. So only one in 12 million people have these properties. Therefore, there's only a one in 12 million chance that these people are innocent. And that is you know, much uh, more than a reasonable doubt, you should convict them. So let's unpack that for a second. The argument they made was because these people have this property, only one in 12 million, therefore there's a one in 12 million chance that they're guilty. That is a completely fallacious argument. And to demonstrate it, let me just change the scenario a little bit and say, let's say that we found some blood at a crime scene that we thought was from a murderer and we did a DNA analysis. And then let's just say we happen to have the DNA of every American on file. And I said, okay, I got this DNA from the crime scene. I'm going through all the DNA on file and I, I only found two matches in the whole country. Okay. Now the odds just by chance alone that the DNA system would match someone is, is one in 175 million. So I, I arrest these two people. Now there's a one in 175 million chance that their DNA would match the crime scene. But there's only a 50% chance that they're guilty, right? Because there's two people that match. So one in 175 million chance of being innocent is a little different than there's a 50-50 chance of you being innocent. If you do the math um, on the Collins case, it turns out that there was only a, there was a seven-eighths chance that they were innocent. And gratefully, um, the California appellate courts overturned the conviction on this mathematical argument. The prosecution made the argument, the jury accepted the argument, and in fact, the prosecution had as its star witness a college math instructor who gave this argument to the jury. I'm willing to stipulate this was an innocent mistake by everybody, but it just goes to show the real-life consequences of a fundamental misunderstanding of, uh, of probability. And it's called the prosecutor's fallacy. And by analysis in certain law review articles, it's still going on to some extent because it just sounds right. You know, if there's only a one in 
175 million chance that your DNA would match the scene, then it's really likely that you were there. But that's just not the case. Yeah. So next time your kids say, when am I ever going to use math in the real world? <laughs> it could have really well, serious consequences. <laughs> hopefully not under these uh, <laughs> circumstances. Right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, you alluded to this. Uh, how might these problems manifest as institutional bias? Right. So this is a big topic in our country today. We are arguing about institutional racism, institutional prejudice, institutionalized bias, and, and it's a very vociferous debate. And let me carve out the question a little bit here. When I say institutional bias in this context, I am not talking about a system which is biased against anyone by attitude or intent. I am talking about a system that I will stipulate the best of intentions treats people of different race differently under the law. That's what I'm talking about here. Acknowledging also, by the way, that, that race is kind of an artificial category, but a minority, you know, minority status. And so there is a, um, an example, um, in the book, but it's, it's not, it's not for me. I'm referencing other people's work about the CalGain database. So in order to be, um, uh, you know, arrested by a, a police officer, there has to be probable cause that, that you've committed a crime. There only has to be reasonable suspicion to detain, question, and frisk you. And reasonable suspicion, I'm, you know, juries will argue about this, but police officers know what they're doing. They've been around a lot. They can probably see things that they equate with something criminal going on, and that's reasonable suspicion. The CalGang database are 10 criteria in the state of California by which you can be designated a gang member. If your name is in the CalGang database, that in of itself is sufficient justification for you to be detained, questioned, and frisked. All right, so th that, is, that is reasonable suspicion. You're on the CalGang database. Now, of the 10 criteria on the CalGang database, one of them is that you have been seen associating with documented gang members, and another one is that you've been seen frequenting gang areas. So what that means is that if you um, live in a, a part of a town where there are gangs frequently, you are going to be in a gang area because you live there. And you may be on the street corner waiting for a light to change and you've been seen associated with a documented gang member. And so what that means is that people who live in that part of town have lower Fourth Amendment rights than people who live in non-gang areas. And for reasons that are separate, but no less troubling, um, gang-infested areas are have an over-representation of people of a lower socioeconomic uh, privilege, and racial minorities tend to be overrepresented in that population. And what that means is that the rules for uh, detaining and questioning and frisking people are different when applied to minorities than non-minorities. Now, you might say, well, you know, what's the big deal? If you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? This is not the point. The point is that people are being treated differently under the law um, due to a systemic uh, manifestation of the types of issues we're talking about. It, it doesn't, I'm not saying it's intentional, uh, but what I'm saying is that it is occurring. All right, James. Well, last question here. So let's talk about things that might help. Uh, what about things like artificial intelligence and the use of big data? What's the promise of this for combating 
human bias. Right. So big data is a um, a kind of a a new thing. It's a it's a buzzword. It's very prevalent in in my field, biomedical research. But it's basically, in a nutshell, um, large quantities of data, far more vast than a human mind could even wrap its head around, being analyzed by computer algorithms that can find patterns that we would not otherwise find. And, you know, it's everywhere. The fact that, you know, um, that <laughs> early on when Netflix was out, you know, my, my daughter and I shared an account. I guess Netflix would get very angry at that today, you know, because they're, they've got this password problem. But yeah, my daughter and I were watching TV together and we would each watch the shows and the, the computer algorithm didn't know, you know, we were other people, two, two different people. So basically, it was trying to find shows that were like documentaries on the Civil War cast with the ponies from Canterlot, My Little Pony. <laughs> and you could tell and like weird stuff was happening, right? Or you have a friend um, who is very, you know, that you're talking to. And um, or I'll even just the other day, my wife uh, was on a Google, uh, her account looking at something. Well, we live at the same house. Google knows this. And therefore, ad things advertising what she was looking for were showing up on my Google feed, even though they're separate things. So, so basically, this is how, how big data manifests itself. And the argument has been made because artificial intelligence algorithms using big data are you know, silicon-based. They're not human minds. Therefore, they don't have human biases. Um, that could be true, I suppose, in an idealized circumstance. But... One of my favorite musical comedians um, from years ago, Tom Lear, once said that life is like a sewer. What you get out of it depends upon what you put into it. <laughs> and you can say the same thing about big data. If you put biased data into the system, then the system is going to have a biased output. And I'd like to come back to the CalGang a database we talked about earlier, because this is a, this, this perfect example, you basically have a big data platform with a computer algorithm that calculates the likelihood of a crime happening and causes the police to go there and lowers the standard for detaining someone and frisking them. But because everything in there is through these loose associations of where you happen to live, it, it carries the bias with it. Um, and then, th by the way, that is that uh, sets aside the more um, sinister part of this is that people can purposely put data in. So the Los Angeles Police Department um, was sanctioned by the state courts. They're not allowed to put information into the CalGang database anymore because they were purposely putting in the names of people who they wanted to be able to pay more attention to and using it as justification. So um, it, it's our, our artificial intelligence algorithms are going to help us. Certainly. Are they going to solve the problems we're talking about? Not the way they're currently being used and potentially not ever, not entirely. So let me get this straight. We're going to have to do the hard work of thinking more logically ourselves. <laughs> um, we are going to have to do the hard work of thinking differently than our minds have evolved to think only some of the time and in particular situations. I cannot emphasize this enough. Humans get a lot of things right. I mean, yes, we have imperfect um, brains in our heads, but we get an awful lot of things right. One of the big conflicts in cognitive psychology has been, if we're such stupid primates, how is it that we've been able to make these massive advances in technological progress, you know, century after century after century? You can debate whether we're 
putting that technology to good use, whether that's a good thing or not. But you have to admit, we're pretty good at solving problems. And so we don't want to throw that away. The last part of the book talks about how a lot of these things that we call cognitive errors are absolutely essential for, for us to to figure out the world and solve problems, et cetera. But the fact that they're really useful in some settings doesn't mean they don't also have these, these downsides to them. And there are now, there's a whole field that's called debiasing. Again, they're using the term debiasing not to say getting rid of like racial or, 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 or gender bias, but getting rid of these cognitive biases where we're learning a lot about um, how we can teach ourselves to not fall into these traps when they are traps. And one thing is abundantly clear, the following strategy just doesn't work. You teach somebody, look at all these biases you have. Now, don't do that anymore. <laughs> that doesn't work because we're not aware of them. They're subconscious. We have to actually teach ourselves. And back to one of your earlier questions, I would posit, and I'm, I'm involved in you know training of PhD students in the sciences. I have been for 20 years, and before that, I was one. Um, the entire process of scientific education is teaching people to unlearn millennia of evolved intuition when you're approaching certain problems in certain ways. And that's what critical thinking type skills really are. And they are very hard to teach. And arguably, we're doing a horrible job in our, in our public school systems. All right. Well, James Zimmering, the book is called Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. It was published by Columbia University Press earlier this year. You can find it anywhere where you buy books. Also, check out some of his earlier work. There was a recent book called What Science Is and How It Really Works. So just go pick up a whole bookshelf worth of, of James Zimmering books. James, thanks so much for joining the program today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, moving along here, can artificial intelligence help us determine whether or not we are reading a credible news source or not? Arjun Morthy and his company, The Factual, are doing just that, and he's going to tell us all about it up next. Well, joining us today is co-founder of The Factual, Arjun Morthy. Arjun, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Lawrence. I'm delighted to be here. So before we begin, why don't you give our listeners your website real quick so they can go take a look and peruse around and look at all the good stuff you guys are doing. Sure. Yeah. Easy peasy. It's thefactual.com. Thefactual.com. So I guess we should start with what in the heck is The Factual? Yeah. Great question. Um, it's a website, newsletter, and app, um, all of which combine to help uh, make it easy for people to get unbiased news on trending topics. And so the ideas that we were, uh, the, the problems that we're trying to solve are one, that people feel the news is increasingly partisan or biased or framed a certain way to lead them to a certain conclusion. And they don't like that. They just want the facts. And so we're trying to uh, get them all the facts, see all the angles from all the sides so that they can reach their own conclusions. Um, and the second part is there's too much news. It's sort of overwhelming. And so we group it into topics so that you can cover topic by topic and therefore you can actually finish reading the news as it were. 
We had a guest on recently, University of Baltimore law professor Kim Whaley, and, and she made an interesting point. She said, you know, when I was a kid, the problem was figuring out how to find news and how to find information. So you had to use card catalogs and microfiches and that kind of stuff. She said, today, the problem is filtering, right? Uh, is figuring out we have all this information, figuring out what we should actually rely on. So tell us about the different products that you have. So you've got a website, you've got a Chrome extension. Tell us about all these different things and how a consumer might use them to be a better news consumer. Behind all these products is a rather sophisticated technology that rates how informative and objective a news article is. And think of it like a really powerful search engine. Uh, every day, our search engine crawls and analyzes about 10,000 articles for how well-researched they are, how unopinionated they are, if the journalist is some sort of topical expert based on their previous writings, and is it a reputable source based on previous previously rated articles. And so we rate all of these 10,000 articles on those four dimensions. We spit out a percentage score from one to 100 that is a rating of how informative and objective it is. Usually we say over 75%, it's quite objective and informative. You should read it. Um, and we overlay political bias ratings so that we make sure that you can get highly rated view, uh, highly rated stories from across the political spectrum so that you can understand how stories might be framed. Uh, and so this engine uh, indexes and, and analyzes 10,000 articles and groups and topics, and then we make that available in many different products. So probably the most popular one is a simple email newsletter. People love it. It's easy. It just arrives in your inbox uh, five days a week and tells you uh, what are the most credible stories uh, on trending topics. It summarizes it, gives you graphs, charts, all this kind of interesting stuff. Um, and that's one product that a lot of people like. Uh, other people really like websites. And so we have a website, factual.news, and you can see everything that's live and sort of uh, what's currently trending and what's most credible. Uh, you can sort and filter by uh, political bias, if you want to avoid paywall articles, all kinds of really nifty filters as well, uh, to your earlier point on filtering being so important these days. And uh, the app then combines both the newsletter and the website into one. So those are sort of the three main products. We have a Chrome extension that will rate articles live as you're browsing them. Um, so as you come up to any news site, it'll give you a little score in the top right corner uh, of your browser. So that's uh, also very convenient, but being Chrome extension only works on desktop. So uh, it's also somewhat limited in that sense. How much does the Chrome extension cost? The Chrome extension is free. Um, and so you can use it. In fact, all of our products have a free plan associated with it. We wanted to make sure that credible news is accessible to everyone. And then some of the products have a paid offering. So the newsletter, the app is entirely paid uh, the newsletter and the website have some features paid. Uh, and so the paid product is $5 a month or $25 a year, which uh, we hope is quite affordable. We've seen a really wide range of people uh, sign up, as you'd expect, nearly everyone buys the annual plan. And all our products are ad-free because one of the things that we wanted to do was to avoid the temptation of clickbait and trying to get people to read more news. We don't want you to read more news. We want you to read the news that's important and then stop reading news. Do something else. Yeah, that's one of the things I often say to students is don't read the news all day, 
right? Don't go down rabbit holes. Uh, pick a few really credible sources, get the news of the day, and then move on. Um, you know, the factual is really useful. On our website, connorsforum.org, we have a trustworthy news guide. And we show you all of these news organizations that have passed the standards of a variety of organizations, the factual being one of them. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that you can actually have a really bad news organization that has some good people working for it and will produce credible articles. You can also have a really great news organization that has some people who produce bad articles from time to time, right? And so the factual will actually tell you uh, not just whether an organization is reliable, but if that individual article is credible as well. That's exactly right. Yeah, we think that by rating at the article level, you have a better chance of finding great journalism in a wide range of sources. When you're at the source level, you can sometimes categorically say a source is good or bad, and it might be unfair or it might be too coarse. Um, so yeah, to your point, sometimes the New York Times will have an article that will not rate very highly. Um, on average, it does pretty well, as you'd sort of expect. It's a good, you know, it's a good source, but it's not perfect. Um, and a lot of times, smaller sites can outrank the New York Times in our system. And the main reason is that if you remember the four factors that I mentioned on what makes for the grade, you know, how well researched is it? So citations, links, quotes, sort of a big algorithm on who do you link to and how authoritative are they? Uh, tonal analysis, which is a natural language processing uh, algorithm. So it's saying, is it really emotional, subjective, opinionated, or is it really objective and fact-driven? Um, author expertise, have they written on this topic before extensively, perhaps exclusively? How well-researched uh, were those past articles, et cetera? And then source reputation, none of those four factors have anything to do with popularity. We don't care about likes and hearts and tweets and backlinks. Backlinks itself, which is, you know, the main, um, one of the main signals for Google, you know, who's linked back to you is somewhat of a popularity signal because New York Times gets the most backlinks sort of almost by definition. But when it comes to news, popularity is not the same thing as credibility. And so we explicitly don't care about popularity in that regard. And for this reason, many smaller sites can outrank the big known sites because they really focus on a topic and they consistently write on it and they write deeply researched pieces. So to give you an example, there's a site called War on the Rocks. And it's very much about military foreign policy, uh, but all around military sort of, uh, you know, their, their analysis on Ukraine and some of the issues there is unbelievable. It's so deep. It's so rich. So you read a couple pieces from there and it's immediately obvious. You don't need a factual rating to tell you this. You read it and you're like, oh my goodness, these guys really know their stuff. That's what we want to find for every topic in the news. Who's the equivalent? Who's just really deep on this? Who really cares about this? Um, let's surface their work, not just the most popular. Yeah. So why don't you do a little more of that? So I find that really interesting. We all know the big ones, right? So, yeah. uh, but what are some of the smaller guys that we've never heard of that are doing a really good job? The Christian Science Monitor, probably a lot of people have heard of them. Uh, they're quite good, actually. You know, they sort of get overlooked in the, in the mix, but they're quite good. On technology issues, I would say Ars Technica is a particularly good one. Ars is for us? Uh, ARS space Technica. Um, okay. It's a very, very good publication. It's actually owned by Condé Nast. It's part of that big umbrella, but 
their analysis is deep and generally unopinionated. They're very, very thoughtful about technology and particularly the intersection of technology and uh, society. How is this technology impacting us? Uh, Naked Capitalism is another great site. It's the intersection of government and finance, uh, really. So how okay, so you're not, you're not sending us to a, a dark corner of the yeah, web yeah, with no, naked no, no. capitalism. <laughs> yeah, no, naked capitalism. Actually, the um, uh, the the main editor, her name is Eves. Oh, I'm going to forget her last name now. But um, very good writing. I mean, mm-hmm. really, really, really deep. She knows her stuff. All right. So tell us about the underlying technology here, the algorithm, right? So um, all the different sites that we have on our site, you know, Ad Fontes Media, NewsGuard, and All Sides, and Media Bias Fact Check, there's lots of different ways in which they analyze the news, which is great because it means that all these sources that we are saying are good sources are, are being evaluated, not just by a bunch of different people, but in a, in a bunch of different ways with different rubrics and different methodologies. Yours is very different from all these others. You know, uh, Ad Fontes has a panel of left, right, and center. Um, NewsGuard has journalists that do this kind of stuff. You guys have an algorithm. So tell us about that. Yeah. So fundamentally, uh, one of our assumptions was that all humans have biases. And if you're looking for unbiased news, we've got to minimize the influence of humans in the process. Not necessarily eliminate them. Humans are still very good at some things. There's a lot of judgment that humans can exercise. Um, They can understand context sometimes better than computers can. But we want to keep it to the parts that humans are good at. And so when we set out to build a rating system, we very much wanted it to be uh, driven by a computer that could be consistent, that would apply the same set of rules no matter who you are, whether you're left or right, whether you're really famous or you're infamous or not infamous, less famous, um, we wanted to apply the same set of rules. And so uh, that was sort of assumption number one. And then assumption number two is uh, algorithms have a bad reputation a lot of late because they're black box and you don't really know how they work. And so sometimes they'll spit out something you're like, huh, that makes no sense. And we wanted to be the antithesis of that. We wanted our algorithm to be transparent. People should understand exactly how it works. You can click and see any grade and say, why did you score this a 72 or an 87 or a 61? Help me understand. And we thought if we do this right, the second benefit that we get is that it is simultaneously uh, imparting media literacy skills to people. We think that's a really important um, skill to have in the 21st century. We all need to be able to evaluate the credibility of the information we get on our own independently when there are no tools around us. Many times it'll be your cousin telling you something as you're walking or sending you something on WhatsApp. Like you may not have access to the factual all the time. So we wanna make sure that as you use tools like the factual, you just sort of get into the habit of saying, wait a minute, tell me about the sources again. Does this journalist, are they reputed? Like, have they written on this? Do they know this topic? Come on, is this an opinion or is it news? What are they trying to really do here? We want that sort of thinking methodology to become ingrained in everyone so that regardless of tools, you're going to be able to evaluate the credibility of news. So those are sort of the foundational assumptions on when we set out to do our work. And so when we rate news articles, uh, you usually will see a different output uh, to some degree than those other four. Again, all those four are very good. They all have their strengths. Um, I'll do a shout out real quick. I think Media Bias Fact Check is great at looking at 
when publications have gone wrong, uh, Dave Van Zandt, the editor there, he's good. And he, they meticulously look for when you've made a mistake. He responds to criticism. Um, he's, he's quite accessible, actually. I, I'm very impressed by what they've done. They've been around for a long time. Uh, NewsGuard does an amazing job at really thinking through how is this source funded? Who's behind this source? What's going on there? I think that's great. I would argue they're the very best at that. AdFonts has a really cool model. I think their panel of people they use and that chart is ubiquitous. Like hats off to, um, oh Lord, I'm going to forget her name now. Um, uh, Vanessa Otero. Oh yeah, yeah. Hats off to Vanessa Otero. I think she's done a really good job. That chart is ubiquitous. Lots and lots of people know it. And while you can have your gripes about the chart, like why is it on that corner or this corner, or it's too hard to read, whatever. She did a great job in making it visual and easy for people to think about this stuff. I think they did a really good job there. So everyone I think has their strengths. We just went a different way of being article specific, not source specific, transparent, and then consistent by using an algorithm rather than humans in the evaluation. You know, I think all of us on a regular basis should be exposed to different points of view. Now, credible points of view that are using facts and are arguing in good faith, but different points of view to help us broaden our horizons and really um, give us much more complex and nuanced understandings of our world. I read this great book by Adam Grant called Think Again, and I believe he's quoting Ray Dalio here, but I, I can't be sure of that. But Anyway, the quote was um, something to the effect of, if you don't look back at yourself and think, wow, how stupid I was a year ago, then you mustn't have learned much in the last year. That, that was that the quote goes something like that. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. And I think sites like the factual and a variety of others can encourage us to look at different viewpoints. Again, credible ones that are using facts that are arguing in good faith, but that will give us a much more holistic understanding of our world. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's right, but our environment in social media particularly doesn't allow us to change our mind. Everyone gets roasted at the stake if you change your mind. Oh, look at you. What 6 years ago you said this. Come on. Everyone I was a whole, I was terribly ignorant last year or the years before, and I'll probably say that about myself 5 years from now. So much of life is learning that you don't know a lot and that you have to learn more. Be humble. You actually don't know a lot. You got to read more. You got to listen more. Um, it's much easier to do this practically if you don't have to perform in front of social media every day. Get off that nonsense and actually just, you know, go back to being semi-anonymous. Just learn. It's good. It's a good life. <laughs> you know, uh, when I was going through my PhD program, they said, you know, everybody has a breakdown at some point. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you're crying on your apartment floor. And um, the, the, the point that made me break down was when I was doing my comprehensive exams, um, you, you have to put together a reading list and you have to go through all those sources. And that was the point where I had my breakdown because the more that I read, the more I realized I didn't know, right? Yeah. Like when you start reading things, all of a sudden you open up all these literatures you didn't even know existed. And so the world of, of knowable knowledge expanded exponentially. And it was like, yeah. oh my gosh, I know. now I think I know less than I did five minutes ago. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> it's got to uh, be daunting. Um, the nice thing, like I said, if you're not performing for anyone else though, then that realization, the, the next thing that you'll soon realize is, wait a minute, that means nobody knows all of it. Right. Oh, yeah. we're all in this together. We're all roughly ignorant 
and we're all trying to figure out the answers, if we help each other out, this is going to be better. You know, you, you think everyone, either I know a lot and you're all dumb, or I'm dumb and you all know a lot. But the answer is actually, no, we're all kind of ignorant and we're all trying to figure it out. That's a good place to get to. Oh, yeah, it's a community of knowledge, right? The um, one, one of the virtues of this, so two years ago, I started this project or a year ago, a year and a half or whatever, this Utterly Moderate podcast, which then uh, expanded into this big educational initiative. And it started out with the explicit intent of being moderate, of being centrist, of going where the facts lead us, not going where ideology leads us. And that was always the intent. But in actually doing that work and talking to people like you and talking to people right of center, left of center, who know their stuff about these uh, issues, gosh, I mean, things that I thought were absolutely true a year ago. And now I know, no, there's not really any absolute answer. It's really murky. And, um, you know, like uh, healthcare, I used to sort of have a, well, you know, universal healthcare is just good. And it's like, no, it's, it's got its problems like everything else. And, and, and uh, uh, any issue like that. Right. So um, I think most of us, yeah, like you say, if we don't have to do these flame wars and we don't have to pick a side and, and, and stay on that side and get flamed for, you know, changing our minds and that kind of stuff, I think, I think we'd be better off. The more I study it, the more I realize how bad social media is for society. Of course, it has some good things. Um, So let's say that, you know, Facebook allows you to connect with communities of people that otherwise might not find each other and important communities, particularly if you're in some small segment, you've got some disease or ailment, for example, it's so nice to find people like you and you're like, oh, you're not alone. So social media has lots of good things, makes it easy to connect with friends and family and keep in touch. Great. But the performative aspect is destroying us. It's making it harder for us to learn and change our minds and evolve as human beings. Um, it's, it's very disappointing. So one of the big things that we wanted to solve at The Factual was not just find great news, but make it easy to talk about the news, make it easy to learn and socialize and change your minds. Uh, I'm hoping that that part becomes even bigger in some sense than just the, the news side. Because what I see now is uh, just a really horrible metaphor. I was just thinking this morning, someone had tweeted something and I was going to reply saying, actually, I disagree. And I thought, what's the point? (laughs) What am I doing? I'm going to fight with this person who I actually know a little bit. I don't really want to make them look bad. But am I doing this because I want to score points because people are going to like, who cares at the end of the day? So I was like, you know what? If I really feel strongly about it, I'll just private message them or I'll send them an email after. But we got to get off this whole performative aspect. So actually, funnily enough, in our podcast, so we have a podcast called Unbiased, similar, I think, conceptually to yours. And we had Mark Cuban on uh, in our last episode. And Mark was great. He's a sharp guy. Mm-hmm. And so Mark said, we were talking about something. We we're talking about politics and why politics is broken and all this and healthcare. And, and, you know, he's trying to fix that with his new online pharmacy. And he said, social media is performance art, pure and simple, period, end of story. He's really blunt. He's like, we are all just performing for the camera. That's it. And I was like, wow, that is very blunt and probably very right. I thought that was really good. So big takeaway for me. I think he was, yeah, he nailed it. And we're all in this game. The sooner we all realize that it's just a game, I think we can take it with a grain of salt or even maybe withdraw a little bit uh, and start living healthier. Yeah, I saw your podcast lineup. You made me feel very insecure when yeah. I saw the, the big hitters you guys got <laughs> over there. <laughs> We've been very fortunate. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, actually, Lawrence, I think what's cool about it is all these people that are 
pretty famous, arguably, uh, at least the ones that we're reaching out to, are also fed up with the status quo. Yeah. They're actually, it's in the same vein of utterly moderate, if you think about it. They're like, I'm tired of the hard left and the hard right. I'm tired of the partisanship, the polarization. I want to speak out. I want to use my platform to say something that this is not, I don't believe in this. Lots and lots of famous people want to say that. So it's pretty cool. Like the way I think about it is you and I were in the same sort of movement, this movement of trying to get people away from the extremes. And turns out there's lots of famous people that want to help us. So your lineup's about to get a whole lot better. All right. So Arjun, is there anything we could do to, in your opinion, to regulate the really partisan stuff we see from like MSNBC and, you know, Fox News and the Breitbart's and Huffington Post's of the world. I mean, um, is it something about regulation? Could we put uh, nutrition labels on this stuff and the factual could be a part of that? Um, is it not a government thing we should be looking at? I mean, uh, what can we do to constrain the Wild West of misinformation and disinformation that we're all just bombarded with like a fire hose every day? Yeah, I think it's a multi-part solution. So it's not going to be any one answer. Uh, some of the onus is on the public and some of the onus is on corporations and some of the onus is on government. So let's start with the personal and the public. All of us have to be smarter about media consumption. It is an essential skill in this century. It is not, it's like reading and writing. You got to know how to evaluate this stuff. So I think there's an education element of it. I think there's a critical thinking element of it. And it's a good thing. A democratic society is always better with a questioning, critical thinking public. That's when you get the best of democracy. So we should be doing that anyways. Extra emphasis now. That's part one. On the corporation side, um, corporations will generally seek to solve for profit. It's sort of what they're built for. I'm skeptical if they can meaningfully move away from the kinds of things that lead to this engagement metrics, uh, popularity metrics, vanity metrics, those things drive their business. It drives ads. It's going to be tough for them to move away from there. Interestingly enough, one reason I'm somewhat optimistic about Elon Musk's potential takeover of Twitter is because I think he cares less about those things. I mean, he said, I really don't care about the economics. I think beyond probably just paying back the debt he's going to put on the company. Um, so who knows how he's actually going to get there and, and how he's going to rule. But if if he starts a trend of saying these engagement metrics are contributing to the disaster that is partisanship, might other people follow his lead? You know, clearly small players like the factual, we're doing it and we're showing it works. But let's be honest, we were, you know, in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that have been exposed to us, not in the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions we need to be. So I'm hopeful that these corporations see that solutions like the factual can exist and honestly, borrow from us. I don't care. Like, I want a better world. And whether it's me or someone else, I don't care at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's part of it is corporations have to understand that if all we do is solve for profit, we are destroying the very societies we need to be functioning well, because we need that for our revenues next year. Uh, and I hope that they move a little bit away from that. Hope that's as best I can say. On the government side, I'm less clear, to be honest. Uh, I worry that regulation, like everyone that worries about regulation is uneven enforcement, vague definitions and descriptions of what qualifies uh, partisanship, uh, bias in, in enforcement. There's a lot of things. I think our current laws 
I don't know, slander, libel, all those things are good. Uh, they're hard for media companies to be caught from them because you have to prove actually quite a lot to nail media companies for it. But they're a place to start. There's that law section 230 that protects um, social media companies from you know the content that their users put out. I think that's probably still the right thing to do. It feels like if you kill that, you're just going to destroy all of these public forums. And I think that's probably a bad thing. So I don't know, Lawrence, not a great answer, but I don't have a silver bullet on regulation. Um, and it worries me because I see a lot of regulation that seems awfully vague in the way it's drafted and therefore enforced. Um, I do very much believe that free speech is, is crucial. I think that the best solution for bad speech is lots and lots of much better speech rather than shutting down the bad speech. Um, it's easy for me to say because I don't have to deal with it at Twitter scale or Facebook scale. I don't know how hard that job is. It must be insane. But that's where I land on. So all that's to say, I don't have a great answer. For now, what I'm hoping is I'll do my part. I'm going to train the public to be a lot smarter. If I do that, then it doesn't matter what these corporations and the government does. We're the, we're the smart public. We're going to push back against all the nonsense anyways. So uh, last question. I, I, uh, this... I started all the stuff that I do around news literacy with Utterly Moderate and the Connors Forum because it just became really apparent to me in my social network, in my family, all around me in my country that we are being poisoned with information. Our minds are being poisoned with information and uh, I wanted to do my part. What led you to this effort? What led you to co-found <laughs> The Factual? Yeah, um, I think if you talk to most startup guys and they're being really honest, the truth is that there's equal parts naivety and arrogance that's required <laughs> to start a company. I mean, really, what the hell was I thinking? You know, we're six years into this now. It's been a tough run. Um, I must have been arrogant to think I could solve a problem this big using technology. And and my best friend as co-founder were like, yeah, we'll have this done in a week. We're a couple of engineers. But clearly- What's the problem will we solve next? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll have this and next week we'll do the moon. Uh, yeah, climate change, yeah. you know, whatever. So I think it was, uh, there's a little bit of ignorance, uh, plain and simple behind it. I've always been a news geek. Uh, you know, my first job was a paper boy when I was 12. And as corny as it sounds, I really loved delivering the newspaper. I thought it was a cool product and my customers were really happy. And I liked reading news. I've been that geek all my life. I've always liked reading. Uh, I had a subscription to a New Yorker when I was 19. And I kept it for 21 years. Um, that was, you know, I'm that kind of kid. So I think that when news is done well, it's enjoyable, it's informative, it's cool. You feel relaxed. You feel good about the world because you understand it better. And news isn't done well now. News is so terribly done a lot of times. Um, I thought this was a problem worth dedicating a good portion of my professional life to solving. And I felt particularly encouraged by it because... I do believe we're living in actually the golden age of journalism, which people are like, are you crazy? I'm like, no, there's amazing writing. The there's views more you good can find stuff today, now than ever before. Yeah. yeah. Like if we had the kind of range of voices we have now, I don't Quality know that we would have. Yeah. 20 years ago, would we have gone into Iraq? I don't right. think so. I think yeah. we would have, they would have been called out way more by the people we have online today. So Today is better than 20 years ago, which was better than 20 years earlier. It is actually better, but it is much harder to find this great news because there's so much crap out there. So I see it as a search problem. I see it as something technology can help with. 
But if we do our job right, we can find really amazing stuff um, that people just didn't know existed. And I'm hopeful that some of the very narrow views that we used to rely on in the past, like people sometimes think, wasn't it great when we had Walter Cronkite and we had ABC, CBS, NBC, wonderful. It's like, yeah, it was wonderful. There were definitely some advantages that we were all in the same you know, set of facts. But I got to tell you, man, they did not paint the whole range of the story. We got very narrow viewpoints. Sometimes when it came to foreign policy, we got the CIA viewpoint, let's be honest. So it is good to have the diversity and the melee we have. We just need to clean it up better. We need to empower people a bit better. Um, and I thought that, yeah, that's worth spending a good chunk of my life fighting for. It's something that I'd be proud of. Frankly, something my mom knows what I'm doing for the first time in my life. 20 years I've worked on stuff. She's never, she's like, what? I don't get it. But this one she gets and she reads our newsletter, which I'm pretty happy with. <laughs> hey, you, you pleased mom. There you go. Uh, <laughs> real quick before you go, uh, early in our interview, uh, when your dog got up on its hind legs and pushed yes. the door open and came in and it was very cute. What's your dog's name? <laughs> My dog's Juno. She's a yellow lab. She's uh, She's got spayed last week. So that's why she's got that giant collar around her <laughs> neck. Um, but she's adorable though. She's chewed up so much furniture now. It's, uh, yeah. it's getting to be a problem, but dogs are great. They're the best. Uh, it's a great, it looks like a great dog. Uh, it's a different yeah. kind of cone. There looks like almost like one of those things you wear on the, um, like on the airplane. On the plane. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the inflatable one because that plastic one, I think is kind of harsh. It, I feel like even though I know dogs have very thick skin, I don't like it. I feel like it's digging into her skin. So we got this inflatable one and she seems quite happy with it because she can sleep on it. Yeah. Uh, but only two more days and then I'll take off the cone and she'll go back Aww. to being regular do you have do you have a dog or a pet so my beagle over here when she had her uh cone of shame uh but she loves us so much that every time she sees us she sprints towards us and crush it she would crush your shin with the cone. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the contraption you have looks much better i'll have to ask for that if i ever do if i have another dog so i love beagles they're so cute oh my god they're oh, such yes. beautiful dogs they're really sweet dogs and, so are and they look smart they look smart you know something about the beagle i just think it's cool uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, but, uh, anyway, Arjun, I've, I've kept you for a while here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, one last time, give us the website. Yeah. Uh, the website's thefactual.com. And, uh, thank you very much, Lawrence, for having me. It's a delightful conversation. I'm so happy that you're doing this and we're on this mission together. I feel that's great. Absolutely. Go visit thefactual.com, thefactual.com. Thank you so much, Arjun. Thanks so much. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Happy 
trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.